Some, some were too young to even understand what was going on, but they were quickly hurried back to their classrooms, and the day was weird, right? I still remember 9-11 very vividly. I was, we were living in Illinois, living in an apartment. Um, I was between ministry jobs and was doing freelance website design. Cade was a toddler. And I remember that morning, Kate, Jenny was at, had already gone to work. Cade and I were at home. I fed Cade breakfast sat Kate down in front of the television to watch some, probably, I'd say cartoons, it was probably Bozo the Clown on WGN that morning, and was looking, reading through emails, and the internet got really slow. This was back in 2000, the internet was slow all the time anyway, so it wasn't that unusual, but it was unusual for it to be that slow that early in the morning. And Kate came in and was complaining that the TV was messed up. I walked into the other room, walked from our, our bedroom back out to the living room, which wasn't very far, and of course the news had cut in. And the first tower was, you know, smoking. And while we watched, the second plane hit. And the rest of that day is kind of a blur of, of things. Living near Chicago, they were convinced that Chicago obviously would be on the target list. So they shut everything down and sent people home. It was crazy, crazy day. And of course, I couldn't get a hold of any of my friends who'd gone to New York to be a minister. So all we could do was pray. Hold on to that, those thoughts for a minute. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Now when we saw last week, we saw Moses and Aaron and God's people preparing for the final plague on Egypt. They had their meal. They were dressed to leave immediately. And the last plague devastated anything that wasn't under God's protection. The people, the animals, 
even before the sun came up the next morning, God's people found themselves to be free, and they were sent away in the middle of the night. And when God told them what route to take and where to camp, he told them not to take the easy way and led them out into the wilderness, angels in front and behind them. And God's people remembered to bring with him the bones of Joseph. They remembered his request hundreds of years before to take and bury him with his family when God's people left Egypt. And while they were still walking, while they were still moving to where God wanted them to camp, the Bible says that Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds and said, what have we done? We've let them go and we've lost their services. Regret set into Pharaoh and the leaders, and they sent the army out to collect God's people and bring them back into bondage. And when God's people saw the army coming, what do you think their initial reaction was? They'd seen over the last few weeks God's miracles time and time again. And so the reaction may, might surprise you a bit. They asked Moses this question. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? And Moses looked at them and without doing anything, without stopping or praying or anything else, he just stood there and said, all right, we'll just stand here. We'll watch the salvation of God. And then he started praying. And God's response was, Moses, what are you doing? Tell God's people to get moving. They need to go that way. It's easy to be self-assured when we think we know what God wants to do. But sometimes we have to stop and listen and hear. So I can pray this morning that the Holy Spirit, Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts. And then, if God's leading us to do something other than what we want to do, we have to be humble enough to follow and listen. And that's what Moses does. After telling everybody, all right, stand still and see the salvation of God, he says, all right, on the other hand, let's move. And God tells him to raise his hand and stretch out his staff over the sea and divide the water so the Israelites can go through on the dry ground. And Moses does those things. And God's people are able to move across on the dry land. And when everyone gets across, Moses listens to God again. And the enemy is defeated. And that's when they started singing. The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. God heard their cries from heaven. And protected Moses' child. And then as an adult until the time was right for their deliverance. God had saved them from their oppressors. And then gave them directions on where they were to go. And then God saved them again. Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after the tambourines and singing and dancing and said. And when the men were finished, the women started singing. And all of God's people praised him for his protection. Hallelujah, when Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange feet. Looking back on it many, many years later, the psalmist reminds God's people of where their parents had come from. Of course, it wasn't their parents at this point. It was their great, 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 great grandparents reminding them of the things God had done in the past. Right? The psalmist says, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the hard rock into a pool of water and 
Flintstone into a flowing stream. God not only protected God's people, God led them on their journey. He provided for them too. God's mercy and love is with us always. In our gospel we read, And then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times. <coughs> now last week we heard Jesus talk with his followers about how we should respond when another Christian sins against us. And he ended it by saying that you should treat them like you treat a tax collector or a Gentile. And hearing this, Peter's immediate response to Jesus' statements is to ask the question, Lord, how many times do we forgive him? Seven seems right, right? God, how many times do we have to forgive? And Jesus says, not seven times I tell you, but 77 times. Or 70 times 70. The math there is a little hard to read. But then Jesus gives them a parable to bring the point home. It says a king comes to settle accounts. And one man owes him so much money. How much does he owe him? Well, one talent, he owes 10,000 talents, remember, is equal to 6,000 denarii. A denarii is how much an ordinary laborer would get paid for a day. That means it would take the man 6,000 days, about 16 years, to earn one talent. People better at math than I have have tried to do the conversion, and I've heard estimates in the hundreds of millions to billions of dollars today. But I know it would take something like 200,000 years of him laboring every day at a denarii a day to pay it all off. Jesus was talking about a ridiculously large sum of money. Imagine if the bank came to you and said, all right, you owe me U.S. $3 billion. You have to pay today or else. You can't do it, right? So the king orders his men to sell him and sell his family into slavery and liquidate every possession they own to try to get some of his money back. But the man throws himself at the feet of the king and begs for mercy. Here's the surprising part. The king heard him, and his heart's touched, and he forgives the man the whole debt and lets him and his family go free. But on his way out the door, the man who'd just been forgiven 10,000 talents sees someone who owes him 100 denarii. This is something we can wrap our minds a little bit better around. 100 denarii is three to four months' wages. We, can, we know what we made in three or four months. If the bank said, you got to make that up today, we could at least make a good stab at it. We might, we could talk to friends and family and see what we could do. But he grabs the man and says, by the throat, yelling at him to pay up now. And the man begs for mercy and says the exact same words that the man who had just been forgiven said. And what's the man's reaction? To have him thrown into prison until his family can pay the debt. And when everyone else heard about it, says they were they were disturbed, they were sick about what happened. And they go and they tell the king. And when the king hears about what he's done, he calls the man before him and asks, what have you done? Why didn't you show him mercy the way I've shown you mercy? And he sends the man out to be tortured until he can pay back the entire debt. And Jesus ends by saying, so my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister 
from your heart. Paul writes, Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Now Paul is continuing to talk to the Romans about living together in faith. How as a living sacrifice, as someone with a transformed mind, how we ought to act. We've been hearing Paul discuss how we should love each other. How we should not seek vengeance even on those who persecute us. And now he says, listen, welcome those who are weak in faith. Not so you can argue with them and set them straight. You notice he mentions here some kind of minor opinions. Whether or not someone should eat meat or just vegetables. Whether we should have church on Sunday or whether we should have it on some other day. Now why should we live like that? Paul says because all of us are trying to live the best we can before the Lord. With the best understanding we have of God and his word. So if someone doesn't want to eat meat because they don't want to harm any living thing or for any other reason. Paul says leave them alone. They're trying to live their best before the Lord. He also says, listen, if someone is eating meat, for the exact same reason, don't condemn them. They're living the best that they can before the Lord. And then Paul says, we do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. He says, listen, because of what Jesus has done, because of his death and resurrection, Jesus is both the Lord and the living and the dead. Our state of being does not matter to Christ. He is our Lord he protects and he cares for us. He leads us, just like he did for Moses when people got to him. Paul says it's not our place to judge each other on these matters. But he goes on to say that by judging and despising and arguing, we will have to explain ourselves to the Lord. He says you'll all have to bend your knee and be accountable for your actions. And I wonder, I really wonder if he was thinking back to this prayer that he wrote. God's love is extravagant. The Bible says his mercy is new every morning. We can see he leads and he guides and he protects. And he's forgiven all of us of a debt that we cannot fully comprehend. It's one that sometimes makes our eyes roll into the back of our head when we try. So our job is not to try and find others and choke the life out of them because we disagree. Our job is to love our neighbors as ourselves. So don't follow Moses' example this morning. Before you do things, stop and pray. Listen to God. Don't stand when you should be moving. Don't stand when you're unselfish.